Well, I could stand some more of that. That was great. Wonderful. The king is coming, by the way. Hope I've told you that recently. Have I? The king is coming again. Today I want to talk to you about Peter's first sermon. If you're going to preach the first sermon, uh, it needs to be about Jesus, right? And that's what it's going to be about. And we're going to have the privilege of going through this the next few weeks and talk about this incredible sermon. There is no question in our day that the church, particularly in America, is suffering from an identity crisis. I hope you realize that, that we are suffering from an identity crisis. People are confused about how to measure its health and to recognize its successes. One branch says that the church needs to be more seeker sensitive and relevant and positive, and even no matter what it takes, we've got to make the church attractive for the people who are out in the world, people who are lost. Others would challenge us to go back to the ancients in its form and in its practice. Others are calling for more church purity, or doctrinal purity that's grounded in reformational theology. The question is, how do we keep our equilibrium in the midst of all of the swirling movements that are around? <clears throat> and I think the crucial question should be this. Who is our source of authority in determining what the church is and what the church does? That is the question, ultimately, about the church. And folks, the authority comes from here. Not the swirling movements or what the world might say the church is supposed to be. Our authority comes from the Bible. So we need to rid ourselves of the cultural blinders <clears throat> that we have on or the personal pet peeves of what we think the church should be, even more particularly First Baptist Church, what we think it ought to be. We need to get back to the bedrock basics of what the Word of God teaches. And I believe a great place to start is right in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. Right? <clears throat> because that's the earliest we can possibly find out what the church was like. And I think this was no doubt a good church. It wasn't a perfect church. We're going to see that as we move through the scriptures. But I think it was a church that we could say pleased and honored the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely we want to be that kind of church, right? A church that pleases and honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we had the privilege of studying the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in the pouring out of the Spirit of God found in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. We saw the dawning of the age of the Spirit of God which in essence began the last days or of course when Christ entered and was born in Bethlehem the incarnation of course began the last days but we see that particularly moving forward in Acts chapter 2. The aftermath of what took place in verses 1 through 2 is given to us in 5 through 12. I'm not going to preach all that again, but just remember there were two incredible Old Testament themes that were fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. One was the regathering of Israel from the four corners of the world, of the known world, and then this restoration where they're brought back together, regathering, restoration the covenant of Abraham is being fulfilled right in the midst of the people who were there in Acts chapter 2. And the message of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, through him all the families 
of the world are blessed. We see that fulfilled right here before us. To, to this event, there were two very distinct responses. The kind of distinct responses that we get every time the Word of God is preached. <clears throat> you remember the story? The narrative? Some people marveled. What are we hearing on this day? When everyone was hearing through the gift of foreign languages, their native tongue, they were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to find out that many of those believed. As a matter of fact, 3,000 of those people believed. <clears throat> but the, the other part, the other distinct response was, they're drunken men, even though it's 9 o'clock in the morning and they haven't even had breakfast. They're drunken men. And that was part of the covenant curse that hearing, they still didn't hear. And that happens every time the Word of God is preached, even in this church. If there are lost people gathered, sometimes we don't have ears to hear, do we? So those two responses are going to be the responses until Jesus returns in all of His glory. People will respond affirmatively to the gospel. They'll believe. But there will be others who are hardened. After hearing the gospel over and over and over again, they will stay in their unbelief. So Pentecost was a historical and a redemptive event. Does everybody remember that from last week? It was the crowning act or event of Christ's redemptive work. It was the dawning of the Messianic age promised by the prophets, fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. It is an era of, it was epical, we might say. Why? Because it was epic in its change. We move from the Old Covenant, of course, into the New Covenant realm. Uh, tongues was mentioned last week. That was the reversal of Babel. And so we have covenant. To the, just think about this. The foreign languages that were given as a gift was a covenant blessing to those who believed. But the gift of foreign language was a covenant curse to those who didn't believe. We learned that from Isaiah last week. So those who mocked would be in direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Okay, now it's time for Peter's sermon. Y'all want to read it? Here it is. Let's read, beginning in chapter 2. Aren't you glad that I'm going to preach this sermon in three parts? And not just one time. Uh, you're going to find out that preaching is vitally important here. Let's stand to our feet. We began reading in verse 14. It won't be a long read, so we can stand but Peter, standing with the eleven, remember that's the same old apostle Peter who denied Christ, right? Who was a coward. But he lifts up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Remember, he's preaching in Jerusalem to Jews gathered from the four corners of the world. For these people are not drunk. Remember that charge in verse 13? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Peter's given a defense, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, meaning nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Get this, folks. This is that. That's exactly how Peter starts this. What you've seen today is exactly what we find in the Old Testament and in fulfillment. And he's going to give us Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, directly from the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that awesome? Praise God for the name of Jesus. You may be seated. Let's take this apart. First, I want to remind you that Peter is following in the same line of thinking that, we've, that we're given in the Bible. What's that? Deed. Is, there's a deed done, which is followed by explanation. Right? We have the revelation given from God, which is the Holy Spirit of God given to us. But that never happens in a, in a vacuum. Every time an event takes place... There's this deed, yes, but there's explanation. And folks, what explains what happens in the Bible is the Bible itself. Uh, The deed is given to us. So the Word interprets deed throughout the Scripture. And how does Peter explain the events that have just taken place? Well, what he does is he has his music director come dressed in a pink tutu. And he kind of prances around in a mime or a drama. and, And everybody gets all the warm fuzzies. Right? He's theatrical. Can you all imagine David jumping around up here like Better yet, can you imagine Blake up here like that, right? Amen. That's right. Well, folks, that's what's happening in a lot of churches today. You know, but that's not what Peter does. He preaches the Word! Right? The first thing out of the gate is not drama or mimes or creativity and, and whatever we can pull out of the hat. What he does is he preaches the Word. Because the only thing that's going to change the world is the Word of God. Period. Any lasting change that's really effectual will happen through the preaching of the Word. So he preaches the Word. He explains. He expounds the Word. And he's going to do it through three Old Testament texts. Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. He's going to preach three parts, three different books of the Bible. And what's he doing? Well, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about how the Holy Spirit works and uh, what will be the response to the people. He does all of that to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's preaching to Jewish people. And obviously, for them to consider that Jesus Christ, their Savior, or to consider their Messiah would be crucified, that that would blow their mind. You telling me I'm going to have a crucified Savior? Do you remember what... Number says, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. They can't wrap their minds around the fact that their Messiah would be a crucified Messiah. So he's going to take the Word of God. Uh, clear, irrefutable teaching from the Word. Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Now you've got to be patient with me. Next week we'll talk about Jesus crucified and resurrected. Then next week we're going to talk about Him being exalted. Those are coming, but today we're going to talk more about embracing the actual work of the Spirit of God. But he's going to use those texts. I won't belabor that. He's going to remind us that David's body is still with us. His bones were placed in the grave, right? But not so with the king. His body is not with us, right? Because he's the real Messiah, the resurrected one. Did you know that 25% of this long book of Acts is preaching. That's pretty incredible. 
25%. You've got eight sermons by Peter, one by Stephen. When we get to that sermon of Stephen's, you need to hold on to your seat. What an amazing sermon. From a deacon, by the way, right? So you've got eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, nine by Paul. 25% of this book is preaching. And I think my purpose in telling you that is to remind you of the central role of preaching in the early church. Folks, that was the quintessential primary thing that the church did when they gathered together. They preached the Word. Everything else was secondary to expounding what the Word of God says to us. When He proclaimed the Word, God was in action. It is no different today. When we preach, thus saith the Lord, what the Word of God says, our God is in action. I'll take it one step forward. When the Word is preached, it's a redemptive act. Every single time you preach this particular book, the Bible that God has given to us. So what does Peter say? We see his leadership right here and his appeal to the people. He's going to use the keys of the kingdom. Did somebody tell him he was going to do that? Did Jesus not tell him, I give you the keys, what you shall open, no man shall close, and what you close, no man... What does that mean? Well, he's exercising the keys of the kingdom. Why? Because he's following in the steps of Christ. He's a prophet. He's going to open his mouth, just like the Old Testament prophets, and he's going to address them. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and notice the terminology, and addressed them. That word addressed is the same word before as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is a redemptive event. This is a divinely inspired utterance that Peter is doing. So he stands up, he makes this appeal to the Jewish common bond, and he forcefully requires the people to listen. Is it okay for me to tell y'all when I'm preaching to listen? Right? That's why I get loud every so often, because some of you like to sleep. Right? It's the first time you've been still all week. You've been so busy. And I understand that. When you get here, you just kind of slump over. But Peter is forcefully requiring them to listen to what he says because he's given them the words of life. What he's saying to them is the most important, important thing they will ever hear. So he forcefully reminds them to hear him. There are thousands of people present listening to this sermon. Can you imagine the kind of the chaos, the rippling effects going on in the crowd when they're hearing the, the gospel in their own native tongue? 3,000 souls are going to be converted. And then the Greek says, give your ears to my words. Now, Think about the courageousness and the boldness of Peter. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? After the resurrection and ascension, Peter's a new man. He is a different man. He's not the one that you read about in the Gospels who's all in the Gospel accounts when he's stepping on his tongue all the time and speaking when he should be listening and, and uh, getting angry when he should not be getting angry. And so in verse 15, he gives a defense about the charge placed against them. You say they're drunken men. I'm telling you now, we don't eat breakfast till 10, and it's 9 now. That's what he's saying. In their time frame, they would eat breakfast at 10. I don't know how they did it. They must have eaten supper at 12 at night. Because <laughs> as soon as my feet hit the floor, I'm ready to eat in the morning, or should I say before that takes place. But 10 o'clock, and in verse 16, it says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I'm Peter's going to give them explanation. This is what this is all about. What you are seeing is nothing less than what was spoken through Joel the prophet. This is going on. This is going to happen many times throughout the book of Acts. He's going to say, what you see is a fulfillment. 
right? Going back to the centrality of the word, what you are seeing is the fulfillment of the word. And the apostles understood that what they saw that day was the complete fulfillment of all that had been promised. And it finds its fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Joel talked about 800 years before, Paul is standing that day and saying, this is fulfilled right before your very eyes. Now, to the point of the sermon. Are you ready? We need to embrace the work of the Spirit. And in 17 through 21, that's why he quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32, is for them to embrace what's going on that day. And at first he talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. And Peter acknowledges that the entire Old Testament looked toward the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Let me remind you of a crucial text of Scripture in the book of Jeremiah. Listen to this. Don't turn. This is the New Covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That's an awesome fulfillment. And that's what this is looking forward to. So here's the first part about embracing the work of the Spirit. First, the prophet Joel predicted a great and awesome day that would inaugurate the messianic era and the last days. That was the direct fulfillment of a promise that God had given Joel to the people of Israel at that moment. And here we're finding it right before our eyes in Acts chapter 2, that fulfillment taking place. Now, the teaching on the last days for the apostles was not that somehow the temple was going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. Had nothing to do with that. The significance of the last days for the apostles had nothing to do with newspaper articles and events. The last days for the apostles was, according to the Old Testament, that the Messiah had come. And he had inaugurated his kingdom. And he proved it by resurrecting from the grave and ascending to his Father in session, exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had proved that. Paul says, upon us... The ends of the ages has come. Right. Reminding us of that. The day of salvation has come. The day of reconciliation, restoration. Now catch this. And even the day of judgment has come upon us. So he's doing this. He's connecting Old Testament events with what's going on in that present day. And he's irrefutably teaching them from Joel that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. The great promise of the Old Testament was that when the Spirit of God is poured out, He won't be given like a little shower this time. He will be given in fullness. He will be poured out on all flesh. But remember, the reason for the pouring out was the completion of redemption by Christ. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. So it's a messianic event. It's a redemptive event where God is doing exactly. Remember last week we learned that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. He began immediately to preach a sermon. You see, he was, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him before his ministry, his mission. Same is true for the church. Jesus gives us the mission, the mission, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. But if he would have sent us out like we were then, there's no power, right? The Holy Spirit had to come. Jesus said it's expedient that that take place. So the idea is that the great abundance of the Spirit has come as promised, in fulfillment of who Jesus Christ is. So the Messianic age has arrived. 
and the kingdom has dawned. Folks, again, possibly the worst theological era going around in this world today is that the kingdom is all something in the future. Put that out of your mind. The kingdom is now. Yeah, is there going to be a fulfillment, uh, a consummation in the end? Absolutely. There's the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is not going to rule in the future. He rules now. And obviously, He will rule completely in the future. But the fact is, Joel predicted this, the awesome day. And what the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Spirit, was not just for warm fuzzies, It was not just phenomenological. It wasn't just for Pentecostal camp meetings. That's not what this is about. The reason the Holy Spirit was given was to inaugurate the Messianic age. And aren't you thankful that we live in it today? We live in the Messianic age right now. And here's the second part. This is going well, isn't it? We're moving right along. Just one major point with two subpoints. And here's the second subpoint. We're doing good. God would pour out His Spirit on all. Note that. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on, say it, all flesh. There you go. Response. This means on the community of faith. Check this out. Indiscriminately. He's going to pour it out on all flesh indiscriminately. In the Old Testament background, not everyone in the covenant community had the Spirit. Many times it was only relegated for who? Prophets, priests, and kings. Many in the Old Testament never participated at all in the blessings of the Spirit of God. But now, under the New Covenant, aren't you thankful for this? And the pouring out of the Spirit and the dawning of the Messianic Age, He pours out His Spirit on all who believe in Jesus Christ. Without partiality, indiscriminately, He pours out His Spirit upon us. Notice how the Spirit is given. It's given to sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. Folks, there's no distinctions here. Aren't you thankful for that? There are no gender distinctions, age distinctions, or class distinctions. The Spirit comes in universality in the age of the Messiah without distinction. doesn't matter who you are. If you trust Jesus, you are immediately infused and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. No matter your gender, your class, no matter what tribe or tongue you're from, that's why it says all flesh. You ought to be glad today that you live under the new covenant and not the old. What a blessing it is. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Abraham longed for our day. He knew what it was going to be like. So the Spirit was surely active. But there was a multitude that was not even considered to be true Israel. Look it up. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So under the new covenant, there's a radical difference. Remember that? You won't say to your neighbor, know God, for we'll all know Him. Why? Because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. No longer would you have people in the covenant community without the Spirit and without the knowledge of God. We should be so thankful for that. There's no discrimination under the new covenant. Now, this is what they will do. They'll see visions, dream dreams, and prophesy. Now, what is our nature when we see those three things? It's the same nature that you have when you see the word tongues and the many different false interpretations that we deal with in our day. I took you back to the Old Testament and showed you that that the gift of tongues was a reversal of Babel, right? It was the regathering. We know that scripturally. And so when we look at dreaming dreams and visions and prophesying, we begin to think about the gift, the nature of the gift 
rather than why the gift was given in the first place, right? And again, have y'all learned, where does this come from? The Old Testament. So we have to know our Bible to be able to understand what this is speaking about. When you see prophecy, when you see visions, when you see dreams, we don't need to get hung up on the exercise of the gift. We need to remember the background of why this is given in the first place. They're all prophetic, and they serve like tongues in their immediate context. The phenomenon is not the main point, but the main point is the possession of the Holy Spirit in all people that come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So to see the context of prophet, dreams, and visions, we've got to go back all the way to the book of Numbers. Do you have a copy of the Word today? This means yes, this means no. Do you have a copy? Look with me in Numbers. The context of Numbers 12 is very significant. It deals with the uniqueness of Moses. You ever heard of that guy? And this is what's so interesting. It all goes back to what Moses asked and prayed for. And there was nobody that was put up on a pedestal for the Jew more than Moses. Right? So again, don't forget, the major reason for all of this preaching is to prove to the Jewish person a defense that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah. So that's what's going on here. The context, the uniqueness of Moses as a spokesman for God and the recipient of divine revelation. Y'all remember the context of this? Aaron and Miriam oppose Moses. And they throw out the old egalitarian argument. Y'all know what egalitarianism is, don't you? That everything with a man and woman should be equal. That means everything we do and function in life, there should be total equality. That means a mom can be a dad and a dad can be a mom. You know, functionally, there's no difference between a man and a woman, right? Wrong. In dignity, in personhood, you're exactly right. God created them male and female. 100% dignity. But there's a difference in the role of a woman and a man. You can tell that by looking at a woman and looking at a man. God made them differently. Do I have to go into any more explanation? Right? Functionally, there's a difference. But here's Miriam and, Moses, here's Miriam and Aaron, and they're saying, you know what? Why is it? That Moses is the only one that can talk to God. Why can't I talk to God? Well, what does God do in response to that? Well, he says, Miriam, you're right. Equal rights movement before your time. You're right. I need to speak to you. No, he gives her leprosy. Now, I don't want to take this too far. But don't you wish sometimes when you hear liberals on TV that all of a sudden they... No, no, we shouldn't say that. But we have these verses. <laughs> Listen to verse 6. I, take that off the tape, right? Verse 6. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly. No riddles. Just, just think about this. I mean, here's his defense of his servant Moses. Unlike Aaron and Miriam, God says this is the kind of person Moses is. I've chosen to do this. So in, in chapter 11, do you remember the context, context? God pours out his spirit on 70 elders. 
And they're able to speak and prophesy as a demonstration of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, two of them stand up and do just that. But then Moses makes this absolutely critical statement in verse 29. Are y'all tracking with me? Nobody snoozing? Look at verse 29 of chapter 11. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Miriam and Aaron, they're jealous because 70 others are given the Spirit to prophesy. Would that, and here's what Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Folks, that is crucial for you understanding what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Would that everyone was a prophet of God. Guess what? If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're a prophet. And you know who you're supposed to speak about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Right? You're a prophet. And so this is crucial. All of God's people now prophesy because all of God's people are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So the glory of Acts 2.17 is that you have the Spirit of God. You know God by the Spirit. All of God's people now have His Spirit. Jeremiah 31 34. We have His Word planted in our hearts. So we have a privilege of making Christ known as a prophet. You know, in Baptist life, we've often talked about the priesthood of believers. And that's an awesome thing. There's level ground at the foot of the cross. If you're in Christ Jesus, you don't have to go through a priest to get to Him. You've got one priest, and His name was Jesus, right? But you are now a priest because you're able to go directly to the Father with straight access all because of Jesus. But we ought to add another part to that. Not only priesthood of believers, but prophethood of believers. Because we're all called by God, given His Spirit, so that we can speak a word for the Lord Jesus Christ. What an awesome privilege. We could also hold as our tradition the truth of the prophethood of all believers. Now check out verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. What is all this talking about? Now, I think we'd make a crucial mistake if we said that there's not a possibility this could be metaphorical language. Because when you read about end time events, there's some symbolic stuff that's hard for us to unpack. And if anybody ever comes to you and says to you, I figured out the book of Revelation. You just go ahead and mark them down as an idiot. Okay? <laughs> There's no way possible for us to know exactly how all this is going to turn out. Too much symbolism. We can track it. As a matter of fact, after I finish Acts in a few years, we're going to go over to Daniel. <laughs> we're going to go to the Old Testament next. Usually flip-flop back and forth. We're going to preach through Daniel. And I won't skip chapters 7 through 12. But the fact of the matter is, these cosmic signs that are mentioned right here... I think it's the best to understand as the already and not yet. Because, folks, there was blackness on the face of the earth when Jesus was crucified. A lot of these events that you read about right there, cosmic signs, they, they accompanied the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So where do I land on this? Well, I think it's the already and the not yet. I think the full effects of what you've just read, cosmic type things is going to be in the future millennial or in the end time events, okay? But I think some of them have already transpired. So it's kind of telescopic. You're seeing the beginning from the end and seeing all the way to the end. It's telescopic. And so that's what the writer is trying to get us to see with all the cosmic things going on. Just imagine that you were living in that particular day and you could remember back 
when darkness fell over the face of the earth. Tombs burst open in Jerusalem. People got up and walked the streets from the dead. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I'd call that cosmic, right? And so Peter quotes the totality of the passage because these events are connected. So I see the signs as already and not yet. You can compare this to Matthew 24, right? The temple was destroyed in AD 70. Many of the prophecies in Matthew 24 have to do with the immediacy of the temple being destroyed. There will not be one stone left upon another. Y'all remember that? But many of the things given in in Matthew 24 are eschatological. There are going to be things that are going to take place in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in power. So the day of the Lord includes salvation and judgment. Started at the cross and will end when Jesus returns in all of his glory. Now finally, Peter quotes verse 32 of Joel 2, which is my favorite verse in all of this. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter quotes the universal gift of salvation. Notice, just so you know, for your sake, that it's in Joel. I'm reading directly from Joel chapter 2. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter quotes the universal offer of salvation. I can stand behind this pulpit today and offer everybody in this building the universal offer of salvation. Whosoever, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. The days are here and the Spirit of God has been poured out from on high The age of the Messiah is here. Notice, he deals with the pouring out of the Spirit as promised, but he ends by saying, what's the most important thing about it? That we're in the age of Messiah. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, because the last days have been inaugurated. Today is the day of salvation. Therefore, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen to John Calvin at this point. No man is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing hindering us from entering but our own unbelief. And that's true for everybody sitting in this building. The gate is wide open. The only thing hindering you from coming in is your own unbelief. In this day that you're in right now, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, folks, it says his name. That's not just wishful thinking. That's not not just, forgive me. It's not just praying the sinner's prayer. I can talk a lot of people into doing that. Right? That's not salvation, folks. You call upon the name. And with the word name means a lot of things. Who is he? What's his character? What did he come to do? Do you is he God? If you're not trusting Jesus as God, you have no salvation. Right? Any man that denies that he is God or that he came in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. How can somebody be saved if you don't recognize he's God? Right? When you call upon the name, you're calling on all that that means of who Jesus is. Not just that you want to escape hell, get out a free card. Get out of hell free card. Right? I just, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to trust him. That's not salvation. Salvation is believing into him 
and then following Him. That's true salvation. There's nothing hindering us from entering but our own unbelief. Listen closest to the free offer of salvation. The gate of salvation has been open to all. My call to you today is turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus only for salvation. How can I say that? Because the Messianic age is here. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no qualification here, right? What an awesome verse. You know what Paul says? Paul adds something to it in Romans. Did you know that? He says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and you will not be disappointed. Isn't that good? I love that. What an awesome promise. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and we will not be disappointed. If you're five or six or seven, you can call upon the name of the Lord, and you can be saved. I believe that. And if you're 90 years old, maybe some of you are even older than that. Some of you probably heard Moses' first speech. But the fact is, you may be 95, but if you call upon the name of the Lord... You will be saved. What an awesome promise. If you never called upon the name of the Lord, please understand that all of your logic and all of your reason and all of your objections don't hold water. You just don't have a leg to stand on, folks. You just don't. As a matter of fact, if Jesus doesn't take me to heaven, I'm not going. I'll just be damned. And I will. I'll be damned to hell if Jesus doesn't take me to heaven. That's how firmly I believe that salvation is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's just not some fancy thinking. That's what the Word of God tells me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man will come to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. Right? Jesus said those words. Call upon the name of Jesus while he may be found. He's as good as his promise, folks. Have you done that? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? And again, Paul says, you will not be disappointed. One of my favorite hymns is, there is a name I love to hear. It's hymn 560. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing His worth. It sounds like music in my ear. Check this out. Sweetest name on earth. Listen to verse 2. This will even make a dead Baptist shout. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells of one whose precious blood the sinner's perfect plea. Listen, you have but one plea as a lost person. And that's the Savior's precious blood that was shed for you. Man, that's good. There's only one perfect plea, and that's the blood of the Lamb that was shed for me and you. Hallelujah, what a song. Well, that's a good one, isn't it? There is a name. Now, folks, listen, here's a conclusion. Do you realize that we live in the time of the fullness of God's Spirit without discrimination? If you know Jesus, you've been given His Spirit 100%. He has come and He's brought His gifts to us and distributed them in the life of our church through His Spirit. Moses' great desire that everybody be filled with the Spirit and could speak a name, speak a word for Jesus, has been fulfilled. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What an awesome thing. 
He not only purchased our salvation by forgiving us of our sins, but He also gave us the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit of God. To God be the glory. That's just part one of the sermon. We're going to get the rest of it this week. Let's pray. God, thank You for loving us. Lord, if it would please You today, would You convict somebody's heart to make that perfect plea? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And because of your precious blood, 1 Peter reminds us that it wasn't the the blood of goats and calves put on the altar year after year, but the precious blood of Jesus, without spot, without blemish. Oh, thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Cleanses us from our sins. Heals our body. Changes our lives. Thank you for it, Lord. May you convict someone to make that perfect plea today. The blood of Jesus only can save us from our sins. For Christians, Lord, I pray that that is the sweetest name in all the earth. The name of Jesus. Help us live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.